Okay, everybody, welcome to Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, the end slash start of the week. Basically, we consider it the end of our week, but it's kind of the beginning. Uh, really interesting uh, VC Sunday School. Molly had a question for me about the downfall of the wing, which suddenly yeah. went out of business and led to this interesting discussion about founders and maybe their blind spots. And putting when it's our job to put guardrails up, actually, which is a great kind of uh, lesson for us and consumer-facing product builders. And then... This week in climate startups, I talked with Tesseract Energy founder Alan Chang about his company's challenging mission to build renewable energy infrastructure, sell energy, and sell excess energy as tokens. It's very disruptive if it works. Really interesting. interesting. It's going to be a great show. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by OpenPhone. As a startup founder, a lot of mistakes are easy to roll back. But using your personal cell phone number as your company number isn't one of them. Open Phone makes it easy to get business phone numbers for you and your team, right on top of your existing devices. Visit openphone.com slash twist to get 20% off your first six months. FanDuel Sportsbook. Use code TWIST during sign up to get started with a no sweat first bet up to $1,000. And Masterclass. Learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. Get 15% off an annual membership to Masterclass at masterclass.com slash startups. All right, Molly, it is Sunday. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everyone. I hope you're having a relaxing Sunday. Hope you're having a little coffee, but you just got that itch to learn. You just want a little Sunday school. We're here for you with VC Sunday School. Yeah. Um, with, with another one, actually, I think we're having a lot of fun with these VC Sunday schools that are based on a thing that is in the news. So sure. there was a really interesting story about the wing, mm. which was kind of like we work for women. It was a very sort of female oriented membership type um, kind of co-working space slash club, it seems like. Uh, Maybe and more it, private club than working spaces. The yeah. vibe I got having been there once. I think more so. like the battery or Soho house than we work, but kind of trying to do both. Maybe I'll give it that kind of trying to do both. Yes, is a big part of it. And uh, it turns out that the wing abruptly has closed. There was a, a long article in fortune about how it failed despite billionaire backers, a $365 million valuation and a 35,000 person waiting list. I mean, the wing was like super flashy, raised a ton of money and then abruptly closed. And in our group chat about it, Jason made this comment hmm. saying, uh, it always seemed to be in service of the founder's ego, not the experience of the customers. And this seems like a really good prompt, if you will, topic prompt, book club prompt. Yeah. Sure. For BC Sunday School. How can you tell the difference when you talk to a founder? Yeah, it, I think, listen, ego is a healthy thing for a founder. Mm-hmm. Being driven is healthy, but sometimes you can have blind spots. And y- if you look at this as a product objectively, it was an awesome product. There was market demand. Women in social clubs, the feedback I got was maybe they didn't always feel welcome. Maybe they didn't feel comfortable and a women first or a women only. Now there's some legal issues around this. They had gotten sued for discrimination because you can, there's always a guy who can sue for that. Like, when they yep. have female poker tournaments. And someone there are did. guys yeah. who show up for the female poker tournament and they're like, I'm going to ruin this and you can't stop me. Mm, and, and it's like, okay, dude, just let, 
we're trying to get more women to play poker. Can you just, it's one tournament. And then these guys would show up, these poker trolls as women and then still pay. And so they finally came up with, in, you know, the, the laws are you can't discriminate against people by gender, I guess, including private clubs, which seems right. But it also seems right that people should be able to have their own spaces if they want to self-organize. I, I don't know, you know, what I think of this legally or whatever. All I know is if women wanted to have a space for themselves, I'm cool with it. I don't need to troll them. So what they did in poker was those they could charge men a different price. So that men had to pay 10,000 and women paid 1000. So women got paid 10 to one for these, you know, mm -hmm. guys who came anyway, this thing was so beautiful and well constructed, they understood yeah. their customers. And the design was gorgeous. You came to the space. And it felt like your, um, you know, best, your best friends, you know, your friend with the best taste who had the best apartment that always hosted the greatest parties or brunches, just really well done. And then they mm -hmm. also did amenities that seemed to really appeal uh, to women. They had a beauty salon in it with a shower. You had all the products there for free. So if you wanted to do your hair, you were having a meeting, just all really good stuff. Now, yeah, there seemed to be a leak in their game that came up over and over and over and over again. And I don't know enough about this. So I'm just going based on what I saw on TikTok and in the articles, which was instead of having this be run, you know, this perfect product, what I think had perfect product market fit, yeah. how they applied the membership was to be very selective and people felt like it was run like a sorority where you had to be cool and they had to exclude people and maybe not run for the bottom line, the profits of the business the sustainability of the business, because the sustainability would say, we'll keep raising the prices, have a good profit margin, service the customers. If you're running a hotel, mm -hmm. uh, are people come in, they pay for the hotel room, you treat everybody the same. You're not saying like, oh, apply to come stay at this hotel. And they certainly got this reputation. And I don't you might know more than me if uh, people in your circle talked about this place that they let in a certain demographic, a certain type of person and maybe excluded other people. I think it's, there was that. And so there yeah. was all of that. There were like a bunch of lawsuits. It sounded like it was like a lot of like yucky, rich white women is how it, you know, ended up feeling to people. And there were specifically yeah. accusations about racism and about yeah. members treating staff at these places really poorly, which is there awful. There seemed to be. A lot of white women uh, were the target membership, perhaps, and maybe people of color were working at the front desk. Right. Weird dynamic. That Weird dynamic. founder did not, I mean, didn't identify. To be, did not get that. And then you'd have white woman berating person of color at the front desk for the yeah. conference room not being set up the way they wanted it to be. I mean, this is where you really have to check yourself and just think about how you're implementing your ideas. You really do. And you have to think about what, you know, it's like every founder at some point has to consider the worst case scenario, the like sure. worst, worst interpretation, worst okay. interpretation, worst side effects. Like imagine you're, of you course. know, that, what is that fat busting drug that gave people explosive diarrhea or <laughs> whatever? I I have given I've, I have been known okay. to say like what is what's the explosive diarrhea that could happen? Yeah, I don't yeah, as a result sure. of your. <laughs> what you're talking about side effects? You're, you're you know, talking which about are, side effects, but then we might also, call in the industry edge cases. Um, okay, yeah, uh huh, good, yep, like that. They also it sounded like tried to expand really fast. 
That's always a challenge. Which is always a challenge. So I wonder like, at what point do you as a, if you're on the board, if you're a VC, at what point do you as a VC, this is a great place to start with this conversation, actually. In those early meetings, do you ever press founders on what they think is the worst case outcome? Yes. For their business? Here's how I I frame it. This And so this is when you have to uh, give founder some counsel. You don't want to tell them what to do because you you hired people who are hopefully leaders and you don't want to be like, here's how to lead necessarily. What you want to do is, is have a dialogue and say, let me tell you the worst interpretation and how this will be spun by yeah. the press, by a competitor, by a disgruntled employee, by an investor who didn't come into the round, just somebody who's an enemy of yours. And mm-hmm. you know, you're going to collect people who are not fans of yours over time. You have them, I have them, everybody has them. You fire somebody, you're, you're basically your Wikipedia page is written by the people you fired if you're a, a CEO. You know, like that's basically what it is. As yeah. a journalist, <laughs> your Wikipedia page, if you are unlucky enough to have one, is going to be written by the people who disagree with whatever you are most passionate about and whatever they hate you for being most passionate about. This is the nature of, you know, being high profile, whatever. So the way to phrase this is, Hey, listen, uh, founder, what is our criteria for accepting people? And they'll say it and say, okay, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, where's that documented? How do you train people to do that? And if you were to attack yourself, if you were to attack this firm, if you were trying to take us out, if you were trying to lead a misinformation campaign on us, a slander campaign on us, uh, just attack us. What would be the worst interpretation? How would you attack this policy? Right? And that is when I write policies, like I'm writing our work from home policy as but one example here at launch, because we move from a in person to a thing. And so I'm writing this with the full knowledge at some point it will leak. And I don't want to be perceived as being like crazy for saying you should have an ethernet cable, you should have a quiet room, you know, you should work these specific hours, we have overlapping hours, but of course, you can change them. So I write it in the spirit of, hey, if this was to leak, you know, somebody would say like, hey, we, we are in the customer facing business. We're on zoom all the time. You need to have an ethernet cable. And you need to have a proper microphone and you need to have proper lighting and you need to be in a quiet room where you're not gonna have a dog barking, a baby crying, a, a roommate barging in, because it would look unprofessional. Now, if that happens, it's not the end of the world. Of course, people understand. But that's our standard, we should try to hit that note. So you have to write these policies with that understanding. I don't think they had that kind of forethought here. Mm -hmm. The if your email box was public, if your slack was public, if your texts, I don't know how this would happen, were public, would you be able to stand by them? Would you feel fine with them? Like I feel fine with my texts. I don't some people might not feel fine with them. Um, I write my texts, I write my emails as if they were going to be read. So I think that's what that's how I would explain it to this person. And I think if they had been more thoughtful about the membership, and maybe run the membership for profit and for servicing those people. And then maybe thought about this disparity in the the optics, mm-hmm. if you will, and, and what could happen, like maybe the opt maybe the reality wasn't that it was a bunch of white women and women of color working at the front desk. Maybe that wasn't right. reality, right? Might but not, maybe right. there were enough instances of it that it felt that way. Yeah, in which case you would really have to think about that. Like, are you letting enough people of color in as members? Are, do you have a code of conduct? Because maybe it was there were just happened to be some Karens at the place who just were maniacal maniacs who were entitled. And you needed to say to them, 
hey, you cannot talk to the staff this way. Mm -hmm. And the team here that supports you, we expect as part of your membership, that you treat them with as much respect as the other members, they're members themselves. That's what I would have done. I would have made the staff mm -hmm. members. And I would have allowed the staff to use the facility as members, and I would have called the staff members. And they would have just been employee members, they would have been, you know, whatever. That's how right. I would have done the optics. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And I would have put in the first code of contact, we treat the support team at the wing with as much respect or more than fellow members. They are members of the community in equal standing to the paying members. Then if somebody were to criticize you, Molly, you could just say, hey, look, number mm -hmm. one in our manual is to treat the support members as well as you treat the paid members. All right, everybody on the phone today is Open Phones founder Darina Kulia. Welcome to the program, Darina. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. What about the situation where you have, you know, a phone number that's a common number? So customer support number, or maybe you wanted people to just be able to call you and generally talk to the sales team. How do you handle that when you have a, a group number, a shared number? That's actually one of the super unique things about the way we've built Open Phone is that we allow you to to have a shared number for your team. First of all, when you call into that shared number, you can set round robin if, if that's applicable or by default, everyone's phone would ring. The first person to pick it up will be able to have a Ooh, call. I like that for customer support. Wow. Exactly, exactly. And also if, if I am on a call with a customer, I don't want to be interrupted. There are other people who can, who can pick up new calls coming in. But I also really think what's very cool is that this workflow works as well for text messages. And not only can you just like share responsibility for responding to text but you can also use this as a training exercise because the way that it works is that if i am a customer support rep there is a text message from a customer i don't know how to answer i can actually tag my teammates privately on that conversation and uh, get help and say hey is this okay to say or how would you respond okay everybody twist listeners can get 20 percent off any plan for their first six months at open phone just go to openphone.com slash twist if you got an existing number they'll put it right over for free head to openphone.com slash twist today for 20 percent off when do you this gets to sort of another version of that conversation when do you have that conversation with that you know i mean in our case we're pretty early stage so it's rare yeah. it's we can definitely uh, in founder university and the accelerator yeah. have some of these conversations with people like this is the worst case scenario planning you might want to be doing. But like, when do you as a VC, like, maybe see this starting to go off the rails? Or you see a couple, of, you know, because mm -hmm. all of a sudden this, this, the wing, which was such a huge deal, had raised so much money is up I'll and tell gone. You. I'll tell you when this happens. This Who happens did an when intervene a big, and when? <laughs> it's when a big influx of money comes in. Mm. Um, because people see that scorecard. And it in certain people, it triggers entitlement. When certain VCs raise a bunch of money, when they have a big exit, you see all of a sudden on their you, you see you see this happen with VCs, right? Oh, their company went public, it became worth a lot of money. Oh, I got to write a book about it. Oh, wait, that's me. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, they're a genius. And everybody needs to listen to it, hang on their every word because of the third or fourth investor in Uber or whatever it is. Or, you know, they uh, start taking pictures of their jets and, and all this stuff, right? Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, they, they just get obnoxious. And they get full of themselves because in our world, for better or worse, money is a scorecard. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the that's Siri with that ding telling me I'm yeah. correct. That was one ding for correct. It's okay. True. And accurate. so it's accurate. <laughs> and, and I think that's what happens. You, you see yeah. it all the time. A founder raises $50 million, $25 million, and they go off the rails. 
And other ones are just like, okay, I got that money, let me get back to work, I'm product focused, but they it can be a distraction, it can also be an ego lift. So I think when the influx of money comes in, that's when a, a discussion should happen with the founders. I tend to do it as a board member on a regular basis. But I'm actually now thinking maybe I should incorporate this into founder university or the accelerator, like we, we incorporated planning, mm -hmm. we incorporate, we're, we're bringing accounting, because we did like two year planning, and we realized people don't know basic accounting. Yeah, so I'm amazing. actually yeah, well, I mean, it makes sense, right? You're starting yeah. a company and building an app. No, it's amazing it's a, that we have that built in, like included, because, you know, how yeah. would you? It doesn't mean it's your skill set, just because no. you're a founder. So yeah. I'm literally going to have um, so great. one of our portfolio companies um, come in and teach basic accounting, just chart of accounting, like, here's how you categorize bills, here's why you do it, here's how you can have a PL, you know, and do reporting. Yeah. Um, just so they don't do it, you know, run the company for two years and then never do their accounting right and have to do a big cleanup job later. So, I do think maybe talking about uh, morals, ethics, perception, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and acting with, you know, a high moral authority, you want to have the high ground in yeah. how you make decisions, I think is very important. I even think you could frame it as just intentionality, like you're being sure. intentional about how you're building your business, and you're considering bad outcomes early. Mm so that you can try to head them off, I think is really, really valuable. And it's interesting, because yeah. that's so every time Elizabeth Holmes comes up, and people would interview me as a journalist, mm -hmm. and now even at once as an investor, about it, it, the question was always like, well, shouldn't the VCs have done something? And yeah. blind no, spots. But also, if there has if, if they we make have. it part of our mandate to say, as you're planning for your growth, are you being intentional about the potential yeah. bad outcomes? That seems really valuable. Yeah, so unintended consequences, blind useful. spots. Yeah, yeah, just, <laughs> I think it's, there's a category of things that could derail a startup. And, yep. you know, going down that list of things that could derail it is a nice way to look at uh, a value proposition for an investor. Yeah, it's like, here are, here are, I always tell people, like, I can tell you what's around the turn, and what speed to take that turn, you still got to drive the car. But I can mm -hmm. tell you, like, you're going into a hairpin turn, you know, most people would take it at 30, you want to try 40 or 50 great, you probably don't want to try 6070, because you're probably gonna slam into that wall or flip the car. And that's yeah. typically how I say to people like, you know, that that's a flip the car scenario, you want to burn, you want to have six months of runway instead of 18. Man, you know, there, there's not a lot of room for error there. So yep. you're going to be taking a, it's like going up the PCH and whipping around turns. It's like, yeah, could be fun. You could get there quicker, you can get to your destination 10 minutes quicker, you could also go off the rail. And you know, they don't have guardrails on the PCH. I don't understand this. You ever drive the PCH, Molly? <laughs> yes. You Let's ever go through certain sections? On no, the but PCH. You... It's exciting. I'm so sorry. I apologize. He breaks it. through the my son is homesick today and it breaks through the do not disturb. As he should. As he should break through the do not disturb. So I mean, just in wrapping. A priority. I don't drive the PCH. <laughs> I don't drive no it. I don't drive it with my kids. I don't drive it myself. Why? I like to drive fast. I like to take the turns fast sometimes. And they don't have guardrails up there. And I just don't every time I drive that thing, especially since I had the my, my daughters. If I'm going up to like one of those beaches in Northern California, yeah. and there's a way to go up and then over, as opposed to go on the PCH, I, I'm taking the long way. I'm not taking the scenic route. I don't want that scenic route with no guardrails. I, I got very important people in that car. Mm -hmm. I'm not even thinking about myself. If I was driving up there, I'd be in my Corvette with the Tiptronic, you know, revving that engine. <laughs> but with those daughters in there, heck no. 
And honestly, that's how you should think of this as a startup founder. Exactly. Boom. If you want to be a solo founder, you're a consultant, you're a podcaster, you want to go crazy, feel free. But once you got those passengers in the car, you got those LPs money in the car, you got your team in the car, it's just a higher responsibility. Responsibility, yeah. Just take it yeah. serious. All right, well, we have a great This Week in Climate Startups coming Ooh, next. What do you got? Yes, exactly. Sunday show, big Sunday show. This is so interesting. Alan Chang is the founder and CEO of Tesseract Energy. Previously, he was the CRO at the fintech company Revolut. And basically was like, how can I apply my kind of understanding of disrupting payments and finance to energy, which is such a complicated space, involves tons of payments and finance. And this company, Tesseract's goal is to generate affordable, renewable power. So mm. they are actually building, mm. financing through the sale of tokens, mm. renewable energy projects. They want to generate a terawatt mm. of renewable energy capacity. And then they're doing two things. Where they are allowed, they sell that energy direct to consumers with no middle person. So it's like oh, wow. a fraction of the cost of buying from a utility. Wow. Where they're not allowed... You can buy the token, which is a representation of excess energy, and then sell that excess energy back into the grid. So you just offset your power cost at home. Really interesting, Jeez. very challenging, but super disruptive if it works. And I see they raised $78 million from Excel and our friend Chris Saka at Lower Carbon Capital, which I'm an yeah. LP in. Okay, you know football season is underway, which means now is the perfect time to download FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Check this out right now. New customers can get a no sweat first bet for up to $1,000. That's right, up to $1,000 in free bets back. If your bet doesn't win, just sign up with the promo code TWIST, T-W-I-S-T. FanDuel is the best place to bet, and here's why. You have all your favorite bets, from point spreads to parlays and even player props, my favorite. And if you miss the tip off, FanDuel has live betting with live odds and keep the game interesting. The app is safe, secure, and super easy to use. And of course, you get your winnings paid fast. I mean, here's some Knicks odds. You know, I'm a big, long-suffering Knicks fan. Right now, the Knicks are plus 220 to make the playoffs. That means if I put $1,000 on the Knicks and they make the playoffs, I win more than double. And right now, the Knicks regular season win total is set at 38.5. I'm definitely taking the over. I think it's going to be 41 to 43 wins. I think that we are going to shock the world, as RJ Barrett said. So get in on the action. Have some fun. Sign up today with the promo code TWIST for your no sweat first bet. Make every moment mean more this season with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. Alan Chang is the founder and CEO of Tesseract Energy, previously uh, a very early employee and CRO at Revolut, the global financial super app that you're all familiar with. Alan, welcome to This Week in Climate Startups. Thank you. Well, first of all, let's talk about how you made this switch from Revolut into the idea of Tesseract Energy and just trying to tackle the climate problem altogether. Sure. So I think, uh, you know, like for me, I'm... I would consider myself like a problem solver. So I've always loved to solve, you know, big, uh, big, hairy problems. So, you know, Revlo was a great, you know, great platform for me to do that. Um, and, you know, essentially I, in the last few years, I've been thinking about like, you know, you know, Revlo's, uh, you know, you know, growing very fast. Uh, it's making a lot of money. It's profitable. Um, there's over 20 million people using it. Um, so I've been thinking, you know, what is next? Like, what is the next biggest problem to solve? And effectively, I, I actually accidentally stumbled on energy, right? Um, and it was, I think it was, we looked at the battery company that was, battery trading company that was making a lot of money, right? 
And my first question was, whoa, why are they making so much money? That doesn't make sense. And then <laughs> batteries we started are boring. But yeah, no. exactly. Like, yeah. How, how the hell are they making money in batteries, right? And, you know, it's the same battery as, you know, you find in your iPhone, right? And in your Mac. Um, so we started digging and digging deeper and deeper. And then we just realized actually in our energy industry, there's a lot of broken things, uh, things that don't really make sense, right? Um, and also we're not doing so well in, uh, the, you know, our net zero target, right? Uh, and decarbonization. We, I'll say we're pretty behind target. And, and also I don't see a lot of innovation there. Uh, and, and, you know, another thing we found right, was there's a lot of these, you know, uh, solar and wind, right? Which is the cost of, you know, the levelized cost of solar and wind have been, you know, dropping rapidly in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Actually, if you compare to, let's say, um, one of the biggest drivers of energy production today, which is gas, right? Um, renewable is actually four times cheaper already compared to gas. So, so what you have today, right, is, you know, the cost of energy production is actually going down, but the price of energy is actually going up. So something, something really doesn't make sense, right? Um, it's like, I think it's a classic example of market failure. Um, so yeah, so effectively, I decided to, you know, to, to do something about it. And hence how, that's how Tesla was born. And when was that again? So I had this idea, maybe we, we, started, I, we started looking to it maybe two years ago. Um, but formally we decided to do it maybe, uh, yeah, sometime this year. So it's pretty, um, tricky to find details on what you're doing, but I've seen it roughly described as D to C kind of virtually virtual energy, maybe brokering. Tell me, tell me to the extent that you can, what you're building. Sure. So let me start with very, very high level. So high level, we're trying to build, uh, effectively a community driven renewable shell. Right. In one sentence. So let me break it down to two parts. Uh, first part is an energy part. So we, we are, we're building a fully integrated renewable energy company. So that's, you know, buying and building, um, you know, solar utility scale, solar wind, um, batteries, uh, and we sell directly to energy consumers. Right. When I say energy consumers, I mean, people actually consume energy by full integration and, you know, bypassing the, the brokers. We can effectively improve our margins, uh, and we pass some of that margin improvement as savings back to the customers. So you are not a broker; you are in the construction business. You're actually financing and developing renewable yes, we'll, projects we'll build, yourself. We will build those projects. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll also buy. Right, we're optioning yeah. buying uh, projects that you know makes you know our, the economic stack uh, the workout, but we we'll, we we'll also build them uh, as well. So we start from scratch uh we, we do anything from you know starting from scratch like greenfield trying to get the permits to the grid, grid connection all the way to construction and energization to you know buying you know a project which has permits uh what the industry called like shovel ready mm -hmm. right literally you can put a shovel ready to shovel mm -hmm. um so we, we we look at all stages of projects Okay. So you're not, I thought maybe you were selling renewable energy credits or similar, but you are actually selling electrons. Yeah. We are yeah. producing, producing or well, converting electrons rather. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Producing electrons and selling those electrons. Okay. And then, but it's direct to consumer and that seems to be the big unlock in terms Correct. of pricing. Correct. Exactly. So the reason why we go direct to consumer, right? Um, so if you look at the energy economy, right? Um, there is, 
like you can kind of break down into several buckets. So the first big bucket is actually retail. So actually retail is about 30, approximately 30% of the energy economy, which is much bigger than most people think, right? Yeah. Most people assume it's a big industries that consume most energy. Actually, retail is a pretty big part. Um, and actually, it will only grow um, as we electrify you know, transportation. If you compare, let's say, what individuals or SMBs pay um, compared to, let's say, the Amazons of the world, mm-hmm. right? The difference is very, very drastic. So, I mean, this is also this this is also news, right? For example, I, I saw news uh, on AWS signing a big deal with some Californian solar farm like, a couple of weeks back. Um, so, what they do is they go directly to these solar farms, these you know generators, effectively, and negotiate very, very good rates. Um, and if you look at, well, I don't know the details of unit rate, but um, I'm pretty sure it's a pre- much better rate than what you and I pay, right? Um, and effectively, if we look at, you know, the, in the, in the energy economy, right? So if, you know, if you look at, you know, SMBs and individuals, uh, they pay a much, much higher rate than, than these guys, right? So, um, so that's number one. Number two is right now, most of these projects are owned by big private firms and big energy companies. Um, and, they, and they're also financed by, you know, big project finance banks, right? And these energy are sold by, you know, buy some brokers, right? Then eventually gets to the hand of the customers, right? So effectively so many, you know, so many people have made this slice of the cut before it gets to the gets to the customer, right? So effectively, I mean I, I just don't think it makes sense, right? I don't think it's very fair either, right? And I think there should be a way for people to have exposure to these, you know, pretty profitable assets, right? So that's essentially what we're doing, right? We basically giving exposure to all our customers, right? Um, you know, power, right? renewable power, um, and allow them to offset the energy bill. So explain to me how that works. That sounds like now we're getting into the token territory because it's not as simple as you don't become my utility, right? That's not what you're saying. We actually utility. So you're actually my so utility. Let, Wait, let me, let me, what does PG and Egan have to say about that? Cause I, I'm pretty sure <laughs> I'm not allowed to disconnect from them. As much as I want to. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's take a step back, right? So, uh, yeah, so we, we're building a fully integrated uh, renewable energy company from buying building assets, renewable assets, utility scale, sell directly to retail and SMBs. So that's the uh, first thing we do, and we'll sell it 10% cheaper. The second thing we do is we effectively want to allow our customers to capitalize the energy bill. So what we call like virtual power generators, right? Or virtual rooftop solar. Effectively, the problem with rooftop solar, right, is a you need a rooftop, and not everyone has a rooftop. And if you live in a city, that's even more difficult, uh, unless you're like uber wealthy, right? Uh, number two is um, the economics of utility scale. You know, generators are much much better than rooftop, right, on retail scale, right. The approximate translation is about two x, right, two three x. Depending on the technology you're looking at. Um, third is there's no liquidity for rooftop solar, right? So if you want to sell, let's say if you need some cash in hand, right? And you want to sell part of your rooftop solar, you can't. That's not really an option. And no one's going to buy off you, right? Unless yeah. you sell the whole house. Yeah. And even if you do sell the whole house, right? Um, there's no guarantee the new buy actually values, right? Your rooftop solar. There's no, like, let's say you put, you know, $15,000 in, right? There's no, guarantee that the new buyer would actually value your rooftop solar at $15,000. Right. Right. And on top of that, most people lease their rooftop solar 
so they don't own it in the first place and there's a whole lock-in right. thing there. Mm-hmm. And and then there's a the fourth problem, which is uh, effectively the solar technology itself, right? So solar, the peak production for solar happens around, um, you know, during the day, right? At noon, well, depending on the angle of the panel, but around, let's say around noon, right? Whereas the peak demand for, for most people, right, is actually from 6 to 9 p.m. When you come off, uh, when you, when you get off work and you turn the TV on and we put the, put the, put the, put the kettle on, right? You know, from what we see, well, from, from analysis we've done, um, solar can only cover up to 30% of your demand, right? And even with batteries, like that's, um, um, that can increase by maybe 5%. Um, so the rest of the time, right, from 60, 70% of the time, it basically becomes a financial product, right? So what happens is you exporting during the day, you're exporting your excess solar back to the grid, right? And you get a very, very bad rate usually um, for what you get. And at night, you're basically importing, right? So 30% of the time, it's basically like a energy hedge. 70% of the time, it's it's like a financial product. It's like a savings account, right? Um, so it's not, it's not uh, in our opinion, it's not that effective, right? So what we want to do is we want to take effectively a hybrid technology of you know, utility scale of wind, solar, and batteries, and in the future, you know, more renewable technologies. And we want to you know, tokenize it and then basically give like a virtual solar panel to the customer uh, with 50% better economics than rooftop solar, uh, much better UX. So you don't have to get someone to install it, right? Don't, it's hassle-free. You just press the button, right? Um, you can buy and sell anytime. So if you don't have, let's say, $15,000 up front to set up a rooftop solar, that's fine, right? You can start with as little as $1 and then you can build it up, right? Um, you know, you can swipe, you know, some of your money from payday, right? Every two weeks to, to this, you know, uh, virtual, virtual generator. And then you can start building up more and more over time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And offset more and more of your energy bill over time, right? I mean, we've seen this in a lot of fintech players, right? It's, um, you know, we, we can do the exact, exactly the same. And then let's say for, for whatever reason you need some liquidity, right? You can sell immediately and then cash out. And then later you can, you can build it back up again. And more and, and most importantly, if you let's say decide to move house, right? I mean, a lot of young people like to move house nowadays, right? If you want to move, that's fine. Like you take your virtual rooftop solar with you, right? You don't have to sell your house and then you know install rooftop solar again, right? And so, in theory, you could also double up, right? If you end up in a house that has rooftop solar or a house where you're allowed to buy energy directly from you, you could still you can still engage in this sort of token arbitrage if you will exactly yeah. exa- exactly exactly yeah. um and, and token is for us uh a way to do really accounting really um you know who who owns what um as well as uh facilitate liquidity uh which is you know helping if people want to buy or sell um in the secondary market they can right so that's that's the reason why we use token so and, and that's also how we finance, you know, to build more net new renewables, right? So our goal is to basically raise as much money as possible, right? To build as much renewables as possible, right? So we do that by, you know, two simple things, right? Number one is making more money per unit energy we generate. Number two is effectively, you know, crowdfunding, right? Right. All right, listen, Masterclass is the best way to learn from the world-class instructors at the top of their game. I love the products. It's some of the best stuff you can get on the internet, including amazing sessions like 
the greatest shooter of all time, my guy Steph Curry, teaching you how to shoot, ball handling, scoring, plus legendary Disney CEO Bob Iger, teaching business leadership and strategy. And I recently, I love this one, I watched Chris Voss, a former FBI lead hostage negotiator, teach the art of negotiation. What a great course that was. And not only do they have these world-class teachers, they also have world-class production values. That's one of the great things. Watching this is a delight. It's it's like the HBO of education. It's like the world-class, most beautiful videos you've ever seen. It's amazing. They have 11 categories with over 150 instructors now. And the lessons, yeah, they're about 10 to 15 minutes long. So they're going to fit into your busy schedule. You should get Masterclass. You get that great subscription. You use it for your family. Everybody, uh, you know, get smarter together. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass. And as a twist listener, you'll get 15% off your annual membership. Just go to masterclass.com slash startups. Once again, masterclass.com. You know how to spell that. That's easy. Slash startups for 15% off the Masterclass annual membership. Is it your intention that the value of the token itself will go up or will it be tied to the kind of kilowatt hour price? I mean, obviously, I, I don't know. Right? Yeah. I don't know how <laughs> how these things will get valued, but I would imagine <laughs> it either. would be. <laughs> yeah, I, I would imagine it will be you know tied to you know the future of power right. prices, right? And you know, if the past is any indication of the future, um, you know, it probably will go up. And the, but the idea is that ultimately, what the token represents is a new version of something like a renewable energy credit it's excess storage that you are able to sell and get liquidity because other energy brokers need think think of it as a this, you think know of I mean, a token is, as are a, there actual kilowatt hours attached to the token yeah so or is it a representation of a credit so one token represents energy is so complicated yeah. i just want to tell our listeners it's so complicated and you're making it way easier but it's still complicated yeah i think an easy solution easiest way to explain it is one token is one water power Right. Okay. And that power yep. generates energy over time. I think I got it. So where you are allowed or where, because there must be some places where you can't sell directly to consumers or small businesses, right? So where you are allowed, you could become a direct customer of Tesseract. Correct. Right. Where are those places? So we know UK and Europe is possible, mm -hmm. right? We know in some places the US is possible, but we, we are aware like some markets, you know, um, where, for example, it's completely monopolized by the government, yep. right? It's not possible. So I think the markets where this can work is basically privatized markets. Are you attaching like a movement to this at all? Which is, you know, the idea that as more and more people become aware that we could be buying power directly and more cheaply, they'll start to agitate for it a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. For sure. A happy like, side effect if it happens. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like renewable power is just fundamentally cheaper. It's better for the environment, right? And there's no reason why people shouldn't buy this, right? There's just so much barrier to entry to rooftop solar, right? Um, we just want to remove all those barriers, also improve on the economics, um, and it's win-win for everyone. How do you look at the market size for this? I mean, it, since anybody could buy the token. Yeah, I infinite, mean, I think it's pretty big, right? Infinite TAM. <laughs> yeah, I mean... So the way I think about it is right now, globally, there's approximately 10 trillion, so 10 terawatts of power, right? Um, including yeah, non-renewables, right? So this is just global power supply. To replace it with, you know, 100% renewables, you approximately need, you know, $10 trillion. Right. So that's a pretty big market. It seems like the... <laughs> 
<laughs> I know. I love this business. Um, it seems like the hardest part of your job might be the projects themselves. Like, how have you found that? I know a couple solar developers, and it is certainly portrayed to be not an easy business to be in. Uh, I think that's correct. But pro probably the biggest challenge is permitting, right? Like, for example, one one problem we see, right, is a lot of uh, a lot of people living in the, those communities where the projects are being built in, right? They just don't want those projects to be built there, which kind of makes sense, right? Is if you you don't really want something near your backyard, right? Um, that has nothing to do with you, right? And you know you don't want it there, right? Mm -hmm. However. The good thing of being fully integrated and, you know, being community first is like, imagine people can actually vote, like people using our, our, our products, right? In those communities, they can vote whether they want uh, those projects or where they want to put it. And actually there is a, a financial incentive for them because if they, you know, want, if they promote, you know, they, they, they want this project to be built there, they can actually save more money and energy. So I think if, yeah, so the classic way to do pro these projects is, you know, if the private equity fund bid it, all the money, all the financial upside goes to the private equity, right? And the banks that finance it, it's not, it doesn't benefit the community, right? However, if it's community driven, right, uh, and has direct benefits to the community, that's a very different story. So I think that's one of the strategic advantages we have over, let's say, a private equity fund doing this, right? Is there an example? Is there a community where this is happening? Have any projects been built? Yeah, yeah. So there is actually a lot of examples where um, there's a lot of examples where you know projects are being you know uh, built by a community. For example, there's some wind farms in in Scotland which is community owned, right? And I want to be clear: when you're saying community, you mean the actual local community, yes. not the Web three community. Yes, it's local community. But maybe like a little bit of both. <laughs> Well, I haven't seen any Web3 projects. Right. Okay. Um, so on the local community. Sometimes it's very local. You, like literally it, in right. that town. Yep. In a it. small Scottish town <laughs> where everyone owns a little piece of a wind farm. Right. Amazing. Yes. And, you know, what you see is, is if you look at the duration for the permitting process, community owned ones much faster than mm -hmm. non community owned ones. Right. So it's not something we've invented, right? It's just something we see. Ah, oh, this is much faster. This kind of makes sense, right? Right. And everybody saves money and is happy. Um, exactly. And then tell me about the private token sale. It sounds like that process, you raised $30 million in traditional equity, right? From VCs yes, and, and then $40 million, $48 million through private token sale. Yes, that's all right. And that just happened? Um, or actually happened recently? Couple, yeah, it happened a couple of months ago, but we got okay. announced recently. Great. And so then, and that is all going into project development and token sales. And like, what's the, wh where are you at now? Kind of what's your stage? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we, we, we deploy some of that capital in hiring, uh, hiring talent. Um, so we're about, uh, 25 people now, uh, in the team. Uh, we, and obviously we, we deploy majority of the capital in building, um, yeah, building and buying, uh, these utility scale, um, projects. Mm -hmm. How many are there in the pipeline? So we have over 100, uh, over 100 megawatts in the pipeline. Wow. And we should, I don't think we clarified, you're based in the UK. So when you say you're working in these European markets, it's that's, <laughs> that's why. 
Yes. So our, our yeah, our first market's in the UK. Um because yeah, the quite an attractive market to be in. Um but yeah, our, our ambition is global. We wanna be where where this problem exists. So what are the next steps for you as a company in terms of getting the word out, other than this podcast, obviously? <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, next steps is uh so we're building we're building the product. Uh so we we're going we we we're, we're entering close beta by in one or two months time, um, and we'll, we'll we'll enter the public launch uh, sometime next year. You know, you're a very matter of fact speaker, and I think it would be easy for people to underestimate the kind of the scale of what you're talking about here. I mean, energy is such a profitable market for many. It's such a and deliberately opaque market. It has it is you know at least in the US, pulled by lots of different regulated monopolies. Like the scale of what you're proposing here, it's not, it sort of sounds so simple and obvious, but I have to imagine you're going to run into some buzzsaws of institutional opposition. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. But yeah. I think the key is the high-grade people, right? And uh, what I find is the more ambitious the more ambitious you are, the, the the bigger the the bigger the more hairy problem you're trying to solve. The the you know the more the the best people want to join you, right? So I think in my mind, it's kind of the harder the problem is, the easier it is to to some extent to hire you know better people that can execute better, right? So I think it's it's pros and cons. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you have a mission. You have a great big battle to fight. Who, like, what is your biggest obstacle? In you know, in terms of over, what is the, the part of this industry that you think will be the hardest to disrupt? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think it's, honestly, I think it's the, the whole part of the value chain. Like, I would say every single value chain we've seen so far has many problems. And probably, I will say, the, probably the biggest challenge, right, is our reliance on China. Because... China produces, you know, majority of the utility scale batteries used, right? Um, produces most of the, you know, even the PV panels or uh, the wind turbines, right? So I think whilst renewables can help any country to get, you know, energy independence, uh, reduce the reliance on um, on imp imported fuels. I still think, you know, on the manufacturing side, we so rely on China, right? So I think that's a huge challenge. And I think at some point, you know, someone, if not us, needs to have localized manufacturing, right? I mean, taking a page off Tesla's paybook, right? Um, you know, they make cars where they sell them, right? Which is, which kind of makes sense, right? Um, I think we need to take manufacturing locally where the energy is generated and, 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 and consumed, right? Yeah. Um, right yeah. now, you know, these, these batteries, these solar panels travel halfway across the world in not so renewable container ships. <laughs> right. right? Um, and it just doesn't make sense. No, it is, it is what it is today. Um, and yeah, I believe power should be manufactured locally and generated and consumed locally. I think that's, uh, that's the future. Love it. Alan Chang is founder and CEO of Tesseract Energy, which you find at, there are a couple out there, right? So you're at TesseractEnergy.xyz. Yeah, there it is. I yes. had it open in a tab and I, I found like another blockchain project and this and that. 
Tesseractenergy.xyz. That's the only one you want to find. Yes. Right. All right. Amazing. Well, we look forward to the beta launch. I can't wait to hear more. I'm going to be stalking you from across the pond. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, it's going to be another great week. I already know in this week in startups coming up. Going to be a great week. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday and we'll see you tomorrow morning. I'm sure there's going to be no news. I'm sure it'll be a quiet news week. <laughs>